0: Today's podcast is on narrative and warfare. First, there is the war narrative, sometimes also called the national security narrative. According to Michael Vlahos, and I quote, narrative is the foundation of all strategy upon which all else, policy words and action is built. It is an organizing framework, a foundation of truth that seemed to be self-evident to the audience. Oftentimes the audience is the state, is the nation and or the government. Then once war is underway, or once a national security policy is underway, it becomes the rhetorical handbook for how that policy or how that war is to be argued and described. Next, and for the rest of this podcast, I want to discuss narratives to deter war. Sun Tzu, as you remember from week two of the course, the best of all, he said, is to vanquish a foreign Army without a fight. The idea is to focus on results, whatever the balance of psychological and physical strength. Focus on paralyzing an adversary, not necessarily on casualties inflicted or the effort put forth. Focus on paralyzing an adversary and not just on the tools of hard power that happen to be at your disposal. According to Cotillia, 4th century BCE, and I quote, The arrow shot by an archer may or may not kill a single man, but skillful intrigue devised by wise men can kill even those who are in the womb. Perhaps winning a war of ideas or winning the story can lead to a sort of checkmate. Winning a war of ideas or winning the quote story may be able to erase the idea of a war well before its inception. Liddell Hart echoes some of these sentiments, and I quote, he says, a strategist should think in in terms of paralyzing, not killing. On the tactical level, a man killed is merely one less man, whereas a man unnerved is a highly infectious carrier of fear, capable of spreading an epidemic of panic. The idea is tactical psychological effects, may have strategic repercussions. On the operational level, he says, the impression made on the mind of the opposing commander can nullify the whole fighting power that his troops possess. And at the grand strategic level, perhaps as he says, psychological pressure on the government of a country may suffice to cancel all the resources at its command so that the sword drops from a paralyzed hand. So what exactly does this mean in warfare, in our study of war, our study of national security, and our study of strategy. This idea of victory before war is even an idea. One idea is the use of fear, something that Liddell Hart talks about. Genghis Khan, known to many MISO teams even today as the godfather of psychological warfare, he... it's unlikely that the Mongol invasions, the war crimes that Genghis Khan and his generals oversaw or commanded, his crimes against humanity, etc. will be repeated today or in the near future, I hope. But perhaps we can still learn something about the way that he tried to amplify power, about his way towards winning without fighting, in some cases with some city-states, and how this can apply, for example, in great power competition, but also in all shades of gray, of warfare. Under Genghis Khan, the Mongols unleashed terror as they rode. The idea is that they wanted city-states to surrender before they even arrived. He realized that his messages and his strategy was most effective through the pens of his scribes and his scholars. He oversaw, commanded a virtual propaganda machine, and he felt that paper was his most potent weapon, and he allowed an open communications environment, an open information environment, because he wanted the most ridiculous and extreme stories and exaggerations and fear to reach the city-states again before he arrived. And actually if you were a young Mongol warrior, you had a choice you could either be a cavalryman, a horseman, a warrior, which had important tactical effects, or you could be a messenger, part of this propaganda apparatus, in which case you could have potentially larger strategic effects, obviously built off the power and the speed and the deeds of what the Mongols actually did. And that was not considered in any way a slight on someone's honor if they chose to be a messenger versus um, a fighter. So let's look to Estonia today and this is very much up for debate, for our debate, those that have served in Estonia we would all love to hear uh, from your perspectives on Estonia attempting to breed fear in order to deter or at least give pause to the Kremlin on any future idea of an incursion malign influence, or even perhaps, God forbid, invasion. So the Estonians have something called the Estonian Defense League, training a nation of insurgents, is what the headlines often say. They have over 24,000 volunteer civilians, including women and children, of a population of a little under one and a half million. On weekends and during holidays and during some weeks, kids can get out of school, people can get out of work to play what The Estonian government calls war games or military sports. They learn how to be partisans, how to be guerrillas, how to build and lay IEDs, improvised explosive devices, to hide weapons, to conduct basic sabotage. They learn from Somalia, they learn from Vietnam, they learn from Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and many other places. And they announce in their annual conference, or I should say, their annual media conference, press conference, on the fact that they do this throughout the year every year, the last few years, I should say, uh, they also announce to the media that they disperse a quote-unquote classified number of automatic rifles. And so the question is, is this rote deterrence? Is this something beyond deterrence? Does this generate a sort of fear, or terror, down to the last would-be adversarial soldier? That Russia may be able to win an occupation, but only at great physical and psychological cost, only after perhaps decades of bloodshed capable of bankrupting the government and country. Estonia's plan, perhaps, would also deny Russian commanders and leaders from easy, ready-made victories. Cities are emptied. Troops leave their bases to become guerrilla cell commanders and trainers, runners in World War I era wire communications, zero out effects of cyber attacks or attacks against key infrastructure. As Estonia goes Stone Age, they would receive the ideas, they would receive support from NATO in order to allow a long term, slow burn guerrilla war. So according to Estonia, this Defense League has become a framework for an evolving national concept of quote-unquote active resistance. Special Forces Colonel, Colonel Utega says they, meaning the Russians, can get to Tallinn in two days, but they will die in Tallinn, and they know this. They will get fire from every corner at every step. According to the Estonian government, Estonia has resources that are as much in demand in the alliance as tow missiles and tanks. What they have in the resources is will and a mobilized population. Stony has a standing army of about 6,000, but with an information strategy, perhaps they're able to achieve more with less, less specifically about guerrilla warfare. Perhaps they can give Russia pause with regards to any kind of unconventional warfare, perhaps annexation, of Russian-speaking populations, and perhaps malign influence in general. And so this points up to an idea that was brought up earlier in this section of SLFC, which is strategy as a political art. Perhaps strategy is the art of creating power, getting more than what the starting balance of hard power might suggest. Getting more out of the will and ability to mobilize hard power that we have within power writ large, remember from SLFC 17, we have the psychological aspects and we have the physical aspects. And perhaps the psychological realm can further their physical ability or a nation's physical ability to maintain power. Thank you.